Psalm 3 be our text for this morning. Follow along as I read the text. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Yahweh, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Yahweh. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. What can miserable Christians sing? What can miserable Christians sing? This is the title of an article that Carl Truman wrote. He's a uh, professor of theology at Grove City College. Uh, His article was written to address the apparent lack of any lament in the songs that modern evangelicals tend to sing. Uh, He's critiquing modern worship uh, music. And he just points out that this is a strange phenomenon since the majority of the Psalms, which are the songbook for Israel and the church, are lament songs. And even outside of the Psalms, there are a great deal of laments. And yet, it seems virtually absent from our hymnology. He writes this, Quote, a diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalistic street party, a theologically incorrect and a pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. He's in essence saying if we only ever have these and it's good too. I mean, we need those too, uh, sometimes to bring us out. But he, he's saying if we only have happy and jolly hymns and choruses all the time, it can give the impression subtly that that's what the expectation is for all of life. And if you're not there, then something is, is wrong with you. He goes on to write, quote, In the Psalms, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship, end quote. That's an important statement as well because lament psalms are worship psalms, right? Sometimes we are uncomfortable with those who are lamenting. And of course, there is a, there's a potential to lament in a way where we uh, are uh, dishonoring the Lord. And yet here's where it's so helpful and so necessary that we have the lament psalms because they give expression to how to lament. How are we to bring our laments to the Lord? And here in Psalm 3, we come to the first lament psalm in the Psalter. 
It is a lament psalm that teaches you how to face your most difficult days. This is one of the worst days of David's life when he wrote this. So what do you do when you face your most difficult days? How do you pray? Do you blame God? Do you withdraw from others? Do you attack others? Do you get angry? Do you get sullen? This psalm is instructive for us in how to face trouble and trials in life with an attitude of trust. And David's experience becomes a model for us in our troubles. What's amazing about this psalm as well is that at the end of the psalm, David's circumstances have not changed. It's not that he was in bad circumstances, and then at the end he's in different circumstances, and now he's happy. Rather, he's in bad circumstances, he works through the psalm, and at the end, he's in the same circumstances, but he's changed. His outlook has changed. And the focal point is the character of God that changes everything for him. It is a psalm that takes us from panic to proclamation to prayer to peace to petition and then finally to praise. It, it serves, as one commentary said, a, as a paradigm for, of personal lament. A paradigm of personal lament. This psalm will instruct you about replacing fear with faith, of alarm with assurance, of trembling with trust, and of panic with praise. Psalm 1 described rejoicing in the, in, in the written word. Psalm 2 spoke of the reign of the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus. And now we've entered into the Psalter. We've passed to the two pillars uh, welcoming us into the Psalter. And what is the first psalm that we face now that we've entered into the, the past the introduction to the Psalter? It's a troubling psalm. As one writer said, it is the way of the righteous in the muck of life. The way of the righteous in the muck of life. It's like trouble hits in Psalm 3. It's like meditating on the word, and then Psalm 2, the, the reign of Christ, and it's this triumphalistic, and then here's the day-to-day. -day. Here's the day-to-day -day issues that we face. It's been called a psalm of firsts. It has the first superscription. Uh, what is that? It is that section, that little description before verse 1 in our English translations that gives us some context. Sometimes it's a historical context. In this case, it is. Sometimes it's a musical uh, notation, kind of how do you sing this song? Uh, uh, you know, a miktam. You're like, what is a miktam? We're like, we don't know exactly, but they knew, right? And so it's some notation to give some context to the psalm. Uh, where did these come from? Well, uh, we believe, uh, I do, personally, that they are inspired, that they are to be taken with the text because our earliest Hebrew manuscripts include them. In fact, in the Hebrew, when, when they added verse numbers into the Hebrew text, they give that verse one. So it's really confusing when you're trying to compare the English verse notations in the Hebrew because they're slightly off when they have a superscription. But it's giving some kind of historical context. It's also the first psalm with a setting. And that's what we're trying to say here is that not only is there a superscription here, but it's also informing us of when this took place. We don't always know when each psalm took place. And they're, they're kind of sit timelessly for us. But this one, we know exactly when this took place. We'll look there in a moment. We know that it was when 
David fled from his son Absalom. It's also the first psalm with Selah in it. We saw that three times in the text, Selah. It occurs 71 times in the Psalms, three times in Habakkuk. You go, what does this word mean? And once again, we don't really know for sure what it meant. Some think it means like pause for a musical interlude. Or some just think it means pause and meditate. And that's probably the best guess is just pause for a moment. Think about what was just spoken. Meditate upon that for a moment longer. It's also the first uh, suffering psalm, and we call these lament psalms, and they are the majority of the psalms. There are 62 of them. They're often neglected, but it teaches us what miserable Christians can sing and pray. It's also the first psalm called a psalm, (laughs) a psalm of David, it says, Uh, and and so it means praises, essentially. Okay, so this is a psalm of first, but what is this historical context that this was written in. When when was this written? Well, look at that superscription, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. This is primarily found in 2 Samuel 15 to 16. 2 Samuel is about David's reign as king, and it actually breaks down quite, uh, quite simply. The book of 2 Samuel, you have the triumphs of David in chapters 1 to 10, Then you have the the transgressions of David in chapters 11 and 12, David and uh, Bathsheba. Then you have the troubles of David in chapter 13 to 24, what comes after the consequences of his sin in the middle of the book. Let me sketch for you the context and bring you up to speed if you haven't been reading in 2 Samuel lately. Uh, When was this psalm written? If you go back in 2 Samuel towards the middle of the book, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then, to cover it up, he killed her husband, Uriah the Hittite. He had him killed to cover it up. David was then confronted by Nathan the prophet about his sin. And David confessed, and he received an assurance of forgiveness from the Lord. And yet, there would be consequences, God told him, for his sin. Forgiveness, yes, but also consequences to come along with that. In 2 Samuel 12, Verse 10, we read this. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this, of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And so there are going to be consequences that come, and particularly related to one from his own household. That's Absalom. Absalom, his son, will bring great trouble to David's life. And so to understand the next part, you need to remember that David had more than one wife. And so Absalom was the uh, son by one wife of David's. Uh, He had another son named Amnon by another wife. And so Absalom and Amnon were half-brothers. Absalom had a sister named Tamar. Uh, Absalom loved his sister Tamar. She was a beautiful woman, and he loved her so much that he named his daughter after her. He named his daughter Tamar. 
But uh, we read in 2 Samuel 13 that uh, Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar and then despised her. Absalom was greatly angered by this. And David was angered as well, but David did nothing about it for two years. Absalom is waiting two years for his father to do something, but he does nothing. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 13 uh, of this waiting period, verse 23. And then Absalom had his half-brother, as he contemplated during that time, how he would get back revenge. He, he then, after two years, killed his brother uh, Amnon. After this, Absalom fled. He left Jerusalem and went into hiding. Now, David loved his son Absalom, and David longed to see his son again. And so Absalom uh, was in exile for, uh, for years until Joab, with the help of a woman uh, from Tekoa, convinced David to allow Absalom to return to Jerusalem. David agreed, but he brings Absalom back into Jerusalem. But then he says, no, Absalom has to stay in another house, and he cannot see me. So he's welcome back into Jerusalem, but he cannot see David. He won't see him. We read about this in 2 Samuel 14, verse 24. It says, And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Absalom, we're told then, was a handsome man. Uh, he had great hair. I mean, they would cut this hair off and he would donate it to Locks of Love or whatever. He's like just a pound of, you know, it's like, he had all this hair. It's incredible. It makes a big deal about his hair. Uh, and um, he was also a great politician, we might say. Absalom, after waiting for two years to see his father, he's waiting in Jerusalem. He's in his own house. He hasn't seen his father. No meeting has been set up. He hasn't seen him. Two years go by. Then he reaches out to Joab again, who convinced David to let him come back. And he says, Joab, set up a, a meeting with me and, and David, with my father. Joab ghosts him, doesn't return any of his texts. He's like, keeps on texting him, doesn't return back. No, there's no text. But he's, Joab just ignores him. He doesn't say anything. So what does, he, what does Absalom do to get Joab's attention? He goes and burns his field. He, li he lights his field on fire. That gets Joab's attention. So Joab's like, okay, I'll set up a meeting. So he sets up a meeting with David and Absalom. They meet, and there's kind of this sort of faux reconciliation. There's a, a kind of reconciliation. David and Absalom meet again for the first time after Absalom had killed his brother Amnon. And there's this kind of reconciliation. Well, then what happens is Absalom begins a long-term conspiracy against his father. What happens is as people come into the city to get a, a, a hearing with the king to solve their problems, Absalom intercepts them. And he says, oh, oh, the king is too busy. And here's actually what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 13. It says, uh, and it, oh, sorry, sorry, not there yet. Um, chapter 15, verse 3. It says, Absalom would say, uh, starting in verse 2, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. 
Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Then Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So in other words, he intercepts everyone. He's like, oh, David doesn't have time for you. Which, remember, that's exactly how Absalom felt. David, when are you going to do something about what happened to my sister? Two years pass. Nothing. And so he's calling into question David as well and by saying, David, he, he you know, you're not going to get a voice with David. David's not going to do anything. I'll help you. I'll help you. And so he just keeps helping people, helping people, helping people. And they love Absalom. And he wins the hearts of the people. Well, this then sets up for what uh, Absalom had been trying to do all along. And he now has enough people on his side that he uh, stages a revolt that makes David have to leave and flee from Jerusalem for his life. And here, if you look in verse 13 of chapter 15, it says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep, his, keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halt, halted at the last house. And so he leaves. He, he has to run away. And then in verse 30, we read this. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads. And they went up weeping as they went. That's the context of Psalm 3. David leaving Jerusalem, weeping as his son is against him, trying to kill him and take over the kingdom. Absalom, if we're thinking in the context of Psalm 2, is setting himself up against the Lord's anointed. And so how do you pray on the worst day of your life? <laughs> I mean, it's hard to say if David had a worse day than this day. As he leaves Jerusalem, barefoot, weeping, his son is trying to kill him, the son whom he loves, and here's what we see in Psalm 3. We see four model responses to overwhelming circumstances. There's four couplets here, and so we'll take them as they come in those four sections. First uh, lesson that we can take from this, the first model response to overwhelming circumstances is to call out to God in present trials. Call out to God in present trials. Look at verse 1 again. He says, Oh, Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. In verse 1, David tells Yahweh what his enemies are doing. And in verse 2, David tells God what his enemies are saying. He has many enemies. He, he repeats the word many three times. And he's trying to show how overwhelming this circumstance is. Thousands chasing him. And these are led by his son, Absalom. His enemies actually believe that they are on the right side, that they are on God's side, and David has been rejected by God. They believe they are doing God's work, and David has been rejected. David has a complaint, and he brings it to God. He doesn't downplay his trial. 
He doesn't even ask for anything yet. He simply describes his trial to God. Many, God, many are are coming against me. And here's what they're saying, God. He's just laying it out. Remember when Hezekiah had the the letter from Sennacherib to come destroy Jerusalem? And what did he do? He went to the temple and he just laid it out before the Lord. And he just told the Lord about it all. Lord, here's what's happening. And this is what David does first. He calls out to God in prayer. He just tells God what's happening. He brings his complaint to God. And that's a common feature of lament psalms. They just, they, they bring a complaint. They bring some kind of lament, but it's not just being brought to other people. It's being brought to God. They deal with their God. And so what do you do on the worst day of your life? You deal with God. You go to God. You wrestle with him in prayer. David also says what they are saying about him, and this maybe hurts even more. Verse 2 says, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. What were they saying? Well, we can kind of imagine. God can save you, yes. They're not denying that God has the power to. They're saying God doesn't have the willingness to save you, David, to deliver you. In other words, there's no salvation for his soul. There's no salvation for him. Look at his sin. David, you sinned with Bathsheba. You killed Uriah. God's not going to save you. Your sin is too great, David. In fact, we actually know most likely what David is speaking of here. In 2 Samuel 16, uh, after David has fled and he's on the run, in 2 Samuel 16, verse 5, a man named Shimei. Uh, curses David. In verse 5 of chapter 16, it says, When David, King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shemai said as he cursed. Get out. Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Yahweh has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, you for you are a man of blood. And so this is the curse he's saying. This is what they're saying about him. There's an actual historical context to this. No hope for you, David. God's forsaken you. It's one thing to have people against you. And, I mean, you can apply this to your own situation, your own life. Maybe there's many against you you feel uh, at your work or, you know, in your family, whatever it may be. But, but when people start saying things about you, there's this subtle temptation to believe it, right? And, and so David may be tempted to think, maybe there isn't hope for me in God as they, as they tell him this. There's no salvation for you, David. What a desperate place to be in. Spurgeon said, It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. It's hard to think of something worse than that. There's no more hope for me. And some people get to that place. I've sinned too, I've sinned too much. I, I've, uh, God, God has rejected me. I, I am lost, utterly lost. And people can get to that place. And, and yet, what does David do? He calls out to God. One writer said, you pour your anguish at the feet of a God who is not supposed to care. You go to him still. And that's what the Lament Psalms do. They teach us that even though there's confusion, even though there's great lament, even though there's great panic, the child of God goes to God. 
Spurgeon went on to write, and remember, our most blessed Savior had to endure this in the deepest degree when he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To be deserted of his father was worse than to be the despised of men. Now, what's interesting about this psalm as well is that David is, in a way, facing consequences for his sin. And so, uh, there's great application there for that, but even if that's not your situation, and sometimes it's hard to even know, and we don't always need to know uh, whether, is this happening because I sinned in some way? I don't think that's necessary to know. Uh, But David does know that because God told him that he would face these kinds of consequences. And so he, when actually, when uh, Shemai curses him, he actually doesn't rebuke him. He's like, yeah, I deserve this. I mean, I, I'm not above being cursed in this way. I mean, I have sinned against God. And yet, he knows that God is his salvation. In fact, at the end of the psalm, he's going to cry out and say, save me, oh my God. And then he says in verse 8, salvation belongs to Yahweh. And so he clings to the salvation that God provides, despite what they're saying about him. I mean, our Lord, not suffering for his own sin, but faced the, the jeerings of the crowd. I mean, Psalm 22, another Psalm of David, verse 7, it says in the Messiah, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. So our Lord faced a great many multitude against him and speaking uh, lies against him. No hope for him and God. Let God save him. And so we learn here that those who are lamenting, having their worst day, they call out to God in present distress. Secondly, we are to confess our trust in God. Confess your trust in God. Verses 3 and 4. And here's the turning point. Look at verse 3. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my head and the, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. David, at this pivotal point in the psalm, turns his focus to his father. Away from his fears to his father. He says, but you, O Yahweh. But you. There's the, there's the turning point in the psalm. It's, it comes quickly. Sometimes in lament psalms, it takes a while for the, the psalmist to find a, a transition in hope. But now he finds confidence in God, in his character. One writer said, trusting in God doesn't begin with I. It begins with you. But you, O Yahweh. He puts his eyes upon God and not upon his enemies or himself. God is the object of his faith. When David looks at himself and his circumstances, there's every reason for panic. When he looks at the character of God, his circumstances may not change, but comfort begins to come into his heart. A good example of this in the scriptures is in Deuteronomy chapter 1, when the spies went into the land and to spy it out, and some became very overwhelmed with the, the enemies that were there, while others had great confidence in going in. In Deuteronomy 1, verse 28, we read, Where are we going up? Our brothers had made, have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Oh, no. <laughs> then I said to you, Do not be in dread or afraid of them. Yahweh, your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you have seen how Yahweh, your God, carried you as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. 
Spies are concerned about the giants. They're overwhelming in their eyes. And yet, the opposite view is God is with us. God is on our side. Speaking in a spiritual sense, not a physical deliverance, Martin Luther said, when I look at myself, I don't see how I could be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I could be lost. What are you looking at? What is your contemplation? What fills your thoughts? David, in his present troubles, quickly turns his gaze to the eternal God. Alan Ross says he found confidence in the fact that God's character and care for him contrasted sharply with their challenge. So what is God to David? What is God to you? Or should he be to you? Well, here's how David describes his God. First, we see David's security. David's security. He says, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. David was a warrior. He knew all about shields. He's in a battle. I mean, he, he's used shields. He's uh, fought many battles. He's very familiar with it. And, you know, the Psalms are great. There's so many word pictures in the Psalms. You can almost just take your finger and put it down anywhere in the Psalms. And within two verses, you're probably going to find some word picture that just kind of elucidates the truth. Uh, and, and, and so David, he's a, he's a soldier. He knows. So he just goes to what uh, makes sense to him. You're like a shield, God. And this is a common way to refer to, to God in, in uh, the Old Testament. I mean, just, this would be like a carpenter saying, God, your word is like a hammer. And it's like, I got a hammer here, you know, smash stuff. Your word is like a hammer, God. And it's like, so David's like a shield. God, you're like a shield to me. It's protection, security, defense. God said this very thing to Abraham when he made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15.1. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. In fact, it's very similar because it, it may even be that, that Yahweh himself is Abraham's reward, which is almost exactly what David is saying. God, you are my shield and you're my glory. You're my reward is essentially what he's saying. And so God made a special covenant with Abraham. God made a special covenant with David. And they're essentially having the same cry to God in their troubles. But this is a shield that has not yet been invented. It is a shield of advanced warfare. It is a shield that covers all around you. That's what he says. You are a shield about me. They didn't have shields like this. The shield is more like a force field. Right? You see those movies, sci-fi, it's like the, the, the bomb comes in, it's like, and then it's like, Poof, and then it goes around them. Or th I thought of Superman. Whenever Superman, like, there's a bomb that's going to go off, and so Superman just, he like hugs someone, and he just wraps his body around this person, and then the explosion happens, and I don't know how his suit never gets burned up. Is his suit also magical or like special? You know, this, the light of the sun makes his suit, I don't know. But it, he, he protects them, and it's like the shield about them that they don't get hurt at all, but he absorbs it. And so this is how he views his God. It's his security. Now, this, we might also infer from this that if anything were to touch David, it would mean that it was intentional, that God had brought it about for some purpose in his life, for his good and God's glory. In other words, if, if God is the shield about me, all about me, and if something were to touch me, it meant that God had this in his plan for me. There's a great security here. This breeds confidence in the heart. God is for you, who could be against you? Who could be successfully against you? H.B. Charles Jr. said, there, things are never as bad as they seem when the Lord is on your side. Things are never as bad as they seem when the Lord is on your side. That's really the message of this psalm. David gets God in his thoughts and things 
become clearer. Well, not only do we see David's security, but also David's significance. David says, God is his glory. My glory, he says. That glory is a way to describe God as being uh, the most important person in existence, really uh, of great significance, weightiness. The idea of glory has a fundamental idea of heaviness or weightiness. Uh, it was actually used of Eli in 1 Samuel uh, 4 that he was a, a weighty guy. He, was a, he had kavod. He was kind of a fat guy. <laughs> it was the idea in the text. Uh, he was overweight. But then it later uses it that the glory of Israel has departed. Ichabod is the name in the same chapter of a child. And so there it's a different sense. Uh, but in the same chapter you have, it's used to this guy for being really heavy physically, but over here it's used for God's glory. And so the idea metaphorically can be a significance. You know, he throws his weight around. It's like, oh, they're really significant, or they're trying to demonstrate that. The heavens declare the glory of God, the significance of God, the weightiness of God, the, the magnitude of God. And so that's this idea here. And David is saying, God, you are my glory. Now, he's not so much saying God is glorious, which, of course, David would say that, and he'll say that elsewhere. But he's saying, God, you're my glory. What is he saying here? He's acknowledging that God to him is his greatest possession. He's of utmost importance, the greatest value to David. Even in this moment, I mean, just think about significant. It's one thing for someone to say this in just uh, the average, you know, day-to-day -day life. For David to say this at this moment in his life is incredibly significant because David is the king of Israel who rules from Jerusalem. And yet, where is he? Not in Jerusalem. And being uh, hunted down by his son, the people of Jerusalem in large part are against him. Yes, he has some with him, but they are against him. And so, you could think maybe David derives some significance from being the king of Israel. Maybe that's somewhat of his identity. Just like maybe your job is somewhat of your identity and your significance or your family or your kids or your reputation. It's like, that's kind of a significant part of my life. If I were to lose that, I would feel a diminished significance in my life. And so David is potentially having a greatly diminished significance in his life. And yet, he says, Yahweh, you are my glory. You are what makes me significant. Not where I am or what I do, but whose I am. You are my significance, God. You are my glory. And Psalm 73, Asaph will say, God is his portion. That's this idea. David seems dishonored, but his glory and honor is not found in himself, but in his God. And so, yes, of course, we derive some level of significance and value and purpose from our jobs, from our families, and that's okay. But ultimate significance comes from, from God. And David understands that. He's not only a security, but he's also his significance. My glory. I tell the story a lot, but I just love it. It's so it ministers to me. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the preacher in, um, uh, in England at Westminster Chapel, he said, uh, he, he retired, he had cancer, and he retired uh, from preaching. And Ian Murray, his biographer, asked him, hey, do you miss preaching? And here's a guy who's like, maybe his greatest significance is in preaching. And he says, oh, I never lived for preaching. And me and Murray's blown away by that. What do you mean you didn't live for preaching? I mean, it's like you, the most significant thing in your life. And uh, he talks about uh, Luke 10, 30. Rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Right? That's your glory. That's your significance, that you are God's, that you are known by God. He is yours. Not necessarily what you do, because that will be taken away. But your glory, that will never be taken away. Your glory in God. 
What is your glory? What is most significant to you? What is your greatest treasure? David's significance. We also see David's restoration or David's salvation. He says, the lifter of my head, lifter of my head. This speaks to restoration and exaltation. Uh, Do you remember the story in uh, Genesis when Joseph is in prison and these two guys are uh, by Pharaoh put in prison with Joseph and they have dreams one night. And so they ask Joseph to interpret the dream. Joseph interprets his dreams for these guys. And he's basically, the interpretation is that one of you guys is going to be exalted and the other not so much, right? And Joseph's uh, dream comes true. And it says that the Pharaoh lifted up the head of one of the men. In other words, the idea is he restored him back to his position in the kingdom. The other guy also had kind of a lifting up of the head by getting killed. <laughs> Your head's going to get lifted up as well and hung. <laughs> and so he, he, that guy dies. And so, uh, but the idea fundamentally is of restoration to leadership. And so I think the idea here is God, David understands that if God uh, wants to, he can restore David. And he has the promise of the Davidic covenant. God is not done with David. He's not bringing him through all this just to put him on the shelf. God loves to restore those who are in desperate conditions. And so he looks to God for his deliverance. God, you're the one who will lift up my head, restore me at the proper time. God will restore you at the proper time. Maybe you're like, well, I don't really feel like I'm lamenting right now. Well, praise God, you know, just give thanks for that, right? And, but, but put this in your pocket, this psalm, and go, okay, this is how I need to think about that. Maybe you are, though, and you need to be assured that God can restore at just the right time. You know, sometimes it's like the you know, construction workers put two-by-fours around a, a spot and they pour the cement in and it kind of holds the shape for the time until that cement hardens. And then they take it away and you get rid of the two-by-fours and, and you have the, the thing there. But if you take the two-by-fours away too early, then it's like, you know, it kind of like seeps out and you don't have a, a firm, solid foundation. I think in a way, God has trials around that he, he kind of hems us in with and puts us there for the time and, until our faith hardens and, and we're drawn closer to him. And, and it's like if you remove the 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 two by four is too soon, you don't get the end product that you want. And so God knows exactly the right time to remove them and lift up the head again. God is a defense of the defenseless, glory for the despised, and joy for the comfortless, in the words of Spurgeon. Notice also David's access to God, and as he uh, brings a, a request, he, verse four, I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. He cries out audibly here. I mean, you can pray silent prayers, that's fine. Thoughts are speech to God. And yet here he cries out. His enemies are crying out against him, so he cries out audibly to God. Sometimes that's a helpful way to stay attentive in your prayers, to actually pray out loud. Because you start to pray in your head, and you're like, da 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 groceries, oh yeah, milk's expensive. And it's like, oh yeah, back to prayer. And it's like, but if you pray out loud, it kind of keeps you focused. And so David is, he's praying out here. He's crying out. He's left the holy hill in Zion, and yet God still is there, and he remains accessible to him. And if you ever get away from a loved one, you go on a vacation, or, well, I don't know why you'd go on a vacation from your immediate family, but let's change that illustration. You go, <laughs> this is a different illustration. Uh, you, you have to go on a business trip, or you're away for some reason, and you miss your family. You're, you're gone for some time. What do you do? Well, back in the day, you may, you know, pull out the, you know, but today you just pull out your phone and you can flip through your phone and look at pictures and yet maybe you have some favorites that you like to look at and you just kind of look at your family and it 
it kind of warms your heart. You, you miss them even more, but you're like, yeah, you know, and you're looking at them. God is spirit. We don't have pictures of God. <laughs> and so we can't pull up uh, pictures of God in that way. But that's essentially what David is doing here. He's picking up and, and he's putting before his heart as he's on the run, as he's away from the holy hill where God's presence dwells in a special way. It's as if he's bringing pictures up of God before his mind's eye. God, you're like a shield. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my head. You're accessible to me. And he reminds himself of those things. You know, it's interesting. Moses wanted to see God's glory in Exodus 34. And what did God do? He said, I will proclaim to you my name. And then he tells him his name. And he gives all these attributes and perfections of God. It tells us in Samuel, in 1 Samuel 3, that God revealed himself to Samuel by the word of Yahweh. This is how God gives us pictures of himself, by his word, by his revelation, not by... Uh, a sight of him necessarily, but a sight of him through the scriptures. And so David here gives us many sightings of God. And so in his turmoil, in his distress, as he is away from home, and he's longing for that presence of God, and he finds encouragement by recalling to himself, reminding, rehearsing to himself the character of God. And so this is why we say in this second point that we need to confess our trust in God. Confess on your worst day. Confess the eternal God. Confess, remind yourself what is true about him and place your trust again in him. Just tell yourself. One time I just, I, I was struggling in prayer for a season and, and so years ago I wrote down, uh, I was like, you know, I just keep starting my prayers with asking for stuff from God, which isn't wrong, but I was just rarely praising God for who he is. And so my heart wasn't getting in the right place. So I just wrote down as many attributes of God as I could think of. And then I, I got some books to help me too. And I just found like a verse or two for each of them. And I put them down the list. So I just had that piece of paper with me. And when I would start my prayers, I would go, all right, I'm gonna take two attributes of God. And I'd pick those and I would just talk to God about those attributes and say, God, you are all-powerful. I mean, you could do anything, God. You, you can accomplish any purpose of yours. And I would just tell God about it. And it would just warm my heart. And I would go, and because sometimes my brain would just go to the same ones. So like, God, you're powerful. You're powerful again today. You're pow and you just, God is powerful every day. But sometimes we, our brains just kind of go to the same ones. So I just had this list that I, I made of God's attributes. And the scriptures do that for you. Look, we got an attribute of the shield of God, right? God is a shield. He's our security. He's our glory. He's the lifter of my head. You could just take those and go, oh God, how comforting that is. And you just talk to God about that. That's how David reorients himself in this terrible situation. Well, he then moves on, and this is perfect. He goes from panic to now he, he's proclaimed God to himself. He's prayed to God. He cries out to Yahweh, and now he finds peace. He finds peace. And so here are the third points. Comfort your heart based on past mercies. Or you could even say count your past blessings. Verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again. For Yahweh, has, for Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. This, this psalm is called a, a morning psalm because of this reference to sleep. Psalm 4 talks about sleep as well. It's called an evening psalm. Or, uh, an evening uh, psalm. And uh, here, David, he recalls now uh, an immediate answer to prayer in that God gave him rest. He gave him sleep. You think, David, this is no time to sleep. You're in battle. You can't go to sleep. You think of like the training exercises for special forces guys, and they're like, if you fall asleep, you're out of here. You're done. <laughs> but here, David is in this, he's running for his life, and he's recalling the character of God, and then he's able to fall asleep. I mean, 
Think about this. I mean, I don't know what kind of sleep problems you might have. I don't know if you, maybe you're a great sleeper. Uh, maybe you get lots of sleep, but maybe you don't. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, people talk about sleep hygiene, and of course there's a lot of reasons where you may not have good sleep. Maybe it's too loud in your room. Maybe it's, uh, uh, I don't know if it could be too quiet. Maybe it's too hot. Maybe it's too cold. Uh, maybe someone snores that, you know, sleeps in the same room. And, uh, and so there's a lot of reasons. Maybe there's too much caffeine before bed. Maybe there's some medications. All these kind of things can have an effect. And we are body-soul unities. And so our body affects our soul, and our soul affects our body. And so in a way, we could say that if your soul is in turmoil, it may in fact affect your sleep. Now, there's more reasons than one, right? So sometimes I've counseled people and they have all, a, a number of challenges and I'll say, well, how are you sleeping? Because that's a very practical question. Like there may be lots of anxieties that, that spring up if your sleep is not good. God made us that way. But here, it's kind of the opposite. It's the idea that David has every reason, so to speak, in the world's way of thinking, to not be able to sleep. I mean, David, everything is going wrong. Everything's falling apart. You're, you're on the run. People are trying to kill you. And yet, David says, I, I went to sleep. I went to sleep. Why? Because God sustained me. David was able to go to sleep because he knew God would care for him. I mean, why did you wake up this morning? Because God sustained you. I mean, that's just an obvious statement, but you went to sleep, you woke up. Why? Because God sustained you through the night. And sleep is a great humbling experience because it reminds us that the world goes on when you go to sleep. You are not indispensable. It's even a picture of our death, that when we die, life goes on. The rest of the world goes on. And so we are not indispensable. Yes, God loves to use us, but here's a humbling experience. We need sleep. And here we can sleep when we rest our trust in God. David knows God is sovereign. He is in control of these things. And so he can rest on that pillow of providence. He looks to God's sustaining grace. And then he wakes up and he gives thanks to God. I mean, that's a, a practical thing. He's like in the middle of his trial and he sees a small answer to prayer. I mean, just how, how simple is it? How often do we forget when we wake up in the morning? Oh God, how kind that I get another day. That I woke up this morning. I didn't die in my sleep. I mean, and David's just like, wow, what a small just expression of your kindness, God, even in this time. And so he's finding reasons in the midst of his trouble to just thank God, to give thanks to acknowledge God. And that's a very practical thing on your worst day, to even find ways, little ways to thank God. And then he, he just preaches to his heart after the, after the fact. In verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Well, I would think so. If you're able to fall asleep, that you won't be afraid. But here, he's just preaching to his heart, right? He has, once again, many reasons to be afraid from the world's perspective, but he says, I will not be afraid. Like, sometimes, our attitude is, well, I'm afraid. I can't do anything about it. I'm just here. I'm just afraid. And David's like, no, I'm going to talk to myself. I'm going to tell my emotions what to do. He's just taking them captive. Hey, don't be afraid, David. <laughs> and he's trying to give himself reasons. I will not be afraid. The situation, mind you, has not changed on the outside of him. But the situation inside of him has changed now. And there's a, a big difference from the panic in verses 1 and 2. Now there's this peace in his heart, this comfort that he has experienced. And he, he tries to maintain it by now preaching to himself and saying, I will not be afraid because of what I've just told myself and what is true and what is right about reality here. Though these people are set up against me, once again, God is my shield, my significance. 
What do you do on the worst day of your life? Well, you call out to God. You consider his character again. And you take comfort in his past mercies, even recent mercies. And then finally, you confidently expect future deliverance. Confidently expect future deliverance. Verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. If we were to break this down a little bit, we could see first the supplication of salvation. He says, Arise, O Yahweh. If you were to trace this down, it comes from a statement Israel would make as they were going to bring the Ark of the Covenant up and go out to battle. In uh, Numbers chapter 10, verse 33, we, we read of the statement, Arise, O Yahweh. And this just brings us full circle. David had said many of his enemies had risen against him. Verse 1, rising against me. And now he says, arise, O Yahweh. So to combat the rising enemies, he calls on God to arise. This is actually really the first time that he asked for something. Yes, in verse 4, he told us that he, he cried out to God and God answered him. But he's kind of zooming out and looking at the whole thing. Now is where he actually asked something of God. And that's instructive for us as well. It's not an ironclad rule that you have to pray like this. But it's often instructive that in the Psalms, the psalmist will start with the character of God and just rehearsing, 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 rehearsing. And then they're, they're, it's like their soul is in the place where they're ready to ask God for things. Sometimes you just sort of go, help, Lord. <laughs> I mean, I just need help. And, and that's good and fine. But it's so helpful that we bring our complaints to the Lord, but we don't just bring our complaints to the Lord because then we need to rehearse God's character and, and remind ourselves of who God is. And then we, it's like our hearts begin to find relief because we, we look about God and not just about our circumstances and our hearts are filled with comfort. And then we're in a place to go, let me ask, Lord, now that you would do this, that you would work for your glory, that you would deliver me according to your will. And so how instructive to begin with God and his character in your prayers. And let the Psalms be a guide for you in that to even be a guide for your prayers. He says, save me, save me, arise and save me. And this has been repeated throughout the psalm, the salvation language, most likely to de a physical deliverance. If you look at the Old Testament, New Testament, and sa salvation deliverance language, the majority, like three-fourths of the uses are probably physical deliverance in the Old Testament. And the majority, like two-thirds are uh, in the New Testament are spiritual deliverance. And yet, I don't think we have to, I mean, here clearly he's talking about physical deliverance because he's on the run, going to be killed. But uh, many of those apply in both directions. And so he, he cries out for salvation, that God would deliver him from this. Next, we see the surety of his salvation. The way these verbs are, uh, are, are written, uh, it, it's really, they, they're in a a tense that is typically a past tense, and yet many understand this to be uh, just as legitimately translated in the future. Like, you, God, you will do this. And ESV has, um, for you, uh, br for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Those are those, those, are those verbs there. So, God, you do this. And so there, it's, it's just the statement of the fact, but... Uh, it, it, you could equally translate, you, you, uh, you have, um, in, in the past, you, you, you struck my enemies, rather, uh, and you broke their teeth, as in a past tense, but it calls me, you will strike. And the idea there is, you know, don't get too confused with this, sometimes the, the author will speak in the past tense to show how sure they are of this happening. Like, I'm just going to say it's already happened, because I'm so sure it will happen. Now, David is in the midst of it. He, his enemies haven't experienced this yet, and yet he prays with such confidence 
with such surety because he knows God will bring it about. And you go, man, this is kind of like a serious prayer. I mean, these are called imprecatory uh, prayers. And this is another first. This is our first imprecation. And, And it's like when you call judgment upon your enemies and you're like, oh man, can, you know, I don't like that, you know, way of talking about God and praying. It's like, pass the hand cream. <laughs> it's, like, uh, it's like, there's just kind of this mamby-pamby kind of way we can view some of these things. It's like, oh, I don't think Christians should pray that way. Uh, but I think they can. In fact, in the New Testament, they do. In Revelation 6, uh, there is the martyrs praying for judgment to come upon the world for those who killed them. And so there is a place for imprecation. Now, it's important to note that in the imprecation, it's basically saying, God, bring justice. Bring the right level of justice upon our enemies. And he speaks about them here. Strike them on the cheek. It's an idea of shaming them. Um, break their teeth. It's the idea of removing their teeth uh, the, uh, to, to uh, make them not able to devour any longer. Uh, you know, think about like an animal that's teeth have been removed. You think, you know, what is... What do you call a bear that's had its teeth removed? A gummy bear, right? It's like, you know, so uh, that's the idea. It's not as terrifying anymore. I'm sure that could hurt you still, but, uh, but, but you see that uh, in these prayers, they're calling on justice. And justice is, is messy because if you're going to pray for God's kingdom to come, you're inherently praying for God to destroy his enemies, those who are opposed to him. If you're going to pray for God to bring salvation, then it means he must punish the enemies who are opposed to his salvation. If you don't have a category for imprecations, then you don't have a way to understand the cross. This is about God's justice. God's salvation, we might say, can only come through the defeat of his enemies. So if David is to be restored, his enemies have to be destroyed. (laughs) The The problem, though, is we are God's enemies, right? Like, we are, the, we are God's enemies. So if God's going to bring judgment, I mean, how, we're like, I'm a sinner. And so then there's the need for salvation ourselves. And this is where David speaks of the source of salvation in verse 8. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And now, it was fine for Israel to have a standing army and horses, but they were never to trust in those things. They were to trust in Yahweh to deliver them and to be their salvation. And we as well. I mean, it's good to use means. It's good to have good doctors or a good lawyer or whatever, you know, finances saved up. But it cannot be our final trust. It cannot be our, our security is found ultimately there. Just like Israel could have a standing army and ought to have, but they could never get to the point where they just trusted that because they had a good army that they were secure. And so God uses means, but we should, and we should seek the best means, but at the end of the day, our ultimate source of salvation is the Lord who uses those very means to accomplish his purposes. Salvation is of the Lord. This is like the statement of Scripture, right? It's like, what is the Bible about? Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation uh, was planned by the Lord. Salvation was purchased by the Lord. Salvation was applied by the Lord. Salvation is preserved by the Lord, and salvation is perfected by the Lord. It is all of the Lord from beginning to end. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It is only found in him. We see then the satisfaction of salvation when he says, not just thinking about himself, but he thinks about the people in Israel. Your blessing be on your people. 
And David wants others to know the blessing that he's known of the, the character of God, the happiness and satisfaction that come from knowing God's deliverance. And so he calls out for their blessing as well. What do you pray on your worst day? Here's a psalm you could pray. Here's a psalm of hope. David quickly removes, moves from his panic to praise in eight verses. How can you face great troubles in your life, even if brought about by your own sin? Come to God in prayer. Consider the character of God. Rehearse the care of God in your answered prayers. And confidently look to the future promise of victory. Now, David, of course, serves as a, a clear type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so though the psalm is, yes, related to David's sin uh, in part, but we can see echoes of the Messiah in this as well, as he was a rejected man by, by his enemies, those who were uh, saying things about him, that there's no salvation, no hope for him in God. A man, though, who trusted his father through it all and looked to the character of God. A man who could sleep in a, in a boat, in a storm, in the, in the most unlikely of circumstances, for he was at peace with God. A man who brought a greater salvation from Yahweh and will bring a greater judgment from Yahweh. A man who was forsaken by men in his righteousness so that we can be assured that there is salvation in God for us and that this blessing for the people of God only comes through Jesus Christ for us. What can miserable Christians sing? Well, hopefully we learn that there are psalms in the Bible to help us express the inexpressible at times, to give words to our hearts, to give expression to deep sorrows in our lives. And if you're not in deep sorrow today, then praise God for that. But we need to know these psalms because the majority of life is full of sorrows. And so the scriptures give us songs to sing in our sorrows. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for these psalms of lament. We pray that they would be a great source of comfort, of stability for us in days when we need them. And may we be a blessing to others in the use of them and acknowledging that there are ups and downs in the Christian life. There are seasons of triumph and seasons of trouble. And may we know how to come to you in each of them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.